You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, I want to add my voice to Rob's and say uh, Happy Mother's Day as well. Um, I hope it's a special day for, uh, for each of you to celebrate who are moms today. And uh, we're going to, I don't have a whole message on Mother's Day. We're going to just continue where we are uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is where we've been. Uh, if you're new here and we haven't met, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And I just want to welcome you. Thanks for coming. Uh, maybe you brought your mom, and uh, maybe you're a guest here. So we certainly want to welcome you, and thank you for being here uh, to celebrate uh, Mother's Day with us today. One thing about the book of Ecclesiastes we're learning as we go through is, uh, well, it's just a one big paradox, because it's a book about joy ultimately, but he gets at it in a very interesting way, uh, because there's a lot of thinking and a lot of wrestling with the text. It's not light, but that's where real joy comes from. Real joy is not light and fluffy. That's sort of a momentary um, emotional happiness, which comes and goes. But real joy, biblically speaking, is rooted in truth that's been wrestled with and perhaps fought for and, um, and, and, and practiced uh, through difficulty in life. That's where real joy comes from. So today we're going to look at a passage that talks about when life doesn't make sense. And I just start with that little comment that the book is ultimately a book about joy, but we see that today, um, much like what we talked about last week, he is wrestling uh, Ecclesiastes, or Solomon calls himself the preacher, is uh, wrestling with uh, some deep truths. You know, we all have times in our life when life doesn't make sense. You might be in one of those now. An unexplainable tragedy happens, and we just say, how in the world? You know, Lord, where are you? How, did, how does this happen? Maybe something's happened like that to you. Or maybe you have, you have a broken relationship, someone that you were so close to at one time, and now the relationship's over. It's broken, and you don't know, how, how did it go from here to there, and what's the explanation? Or maybe it's a financial thing. You say, look, I was doing the right thing with my finances. I was being careful. I, was, I had self-control. We were on a budget for the first time, and we were really making headway. And, man, all of a sudden, something happened out of the blue when we're trying so hard, and it just set us back. Like you can't imagine. Why is that? I mean, we were, we were doing the right thing. And now we're ending up harmed financially. Or someone you know turns out to be someone totally different. That could be so disillusioning. Maybe a Christian person, a Christian leader, or someone you respected. And you, you, you trusted this person, and you go, look what they did. Look who they really are. It doesn't make sense. Or as Rob just prayed... On Mother's Day, for many in the room, you would say, it doesn't make sense. Why, O oh Lord? Why, O oh Lord, could be your prayer today for a thousand different reasons. Well, Ecclesiastes deals with these big ideas in the text today, and he really bumps up against two truths, which we're going to look at. One is, he looks at the mystery of God's ways, 
And then secondly, he's going to look at the limits of man's wisdom. The mystery of God's ways and the limits of human wisdom. And this year we've been emphasizing overall in the life of our church a theme to reach and to equip the next generation. And so I would say to the young people here, if you're a middle schooler, a high schooler, college, young adult, uh, these two truths, you must grasp these two realities in order to make long-term headway. Many people have shipwrecked their faith because they haven't understood these two truths, that, that God's ways are so often mysterious to us and that our wisdom, and we're going to see our righteousness as well, is so limited that we're left looking outside of ourselves. And so to wrestle with these at an early age will serve all of us well. Um, we're going to look at chapter 7, verses 15 through 29, but I'm going to break it up in two sections. And I'm going to start with two verses that we studied last week. So we're going to start with two verses last week because they're the context, and then we'll jump in. So listen to uh, God's word this morning. Uh, I'm going to start with verse 13, chapter 7. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Be not overly righteous. And do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. The mystery of God's ways or God's mysterious ways. In verses 13 and 14, he's talking about God's sovereignty. You notice he said, no one can make crooked what God has made straight. So when he says crooked, he doesn't mean like a crook, something that you're doing wrong. He just means bent. So it's like if you're going down the straight path of life, and all of a sudden there's a bend, and God ordained that bend, God allowed that bend, God caused that bend, nothing you do is going to straighten that out in your timing. You can't straighten what God has bent in the path of life. And he says next, verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, think about this, that God gave both days. So God is Lord, uh, sovereign over prosperous, prosperous days and days of adversity as well. And so the reality is we can look at those and go, <clears throat> those are great verses. And, you know, a phrase like God is sovereign. That, that just flows over Christian lips with such ease, sometimes flippantly, especially when we use that kind of counsel to someone in the middle of a crisis. That's not always where you start. God is sovereign. Um, but so we could just say those things so easily, but it's much more difficult to embrace when life doesn't make sense. And, and, and that's what he says. So he, the preacher affirms God's sovereignty in verse 14, but doesn't he kind of wrestle with it? In verse 15, he says in verse 15 that, you know, in my vain life, that is, we've looked at the word vanity throughout the book, that is, in my brief life, in my ungraspable, uncontrollable, unmanageable life, 
I mean, life is like that. I can't control everything. So in my unmanageable life, this is sort of what I have seen in my elusive life. I can't get a handle on it. I've seen righteous people die young, and I've seen wicked people live on and on and on only to do more evil and to hurt more people. So what, what do you do with that? How, God, why do you allow that? When I was in high school, I had a friend named Chris, and uh, he was a year older than me in school, and uh, he was a really godly guy. At the time, I would have said of the people in our school, I mean, this guy might be the most godly guy I know. He was very smart, but very humble, very gracious, um, regularly shared the Lord with other students. He just had a lot of character, and um, he was diagnosed with cancer. And I remember visiting him, it was his senior year, my junior year, in his hospital room. And, you know, there he had his big Bible. He always had a big Bible with him. It wasn't a show. It wasn't looking righteous. It was just, he just always had it. He was probably always reading it and looking at it. So he had his big Bible right there with him in the hospital bed. And he had Keith Green playing. So for some old people, that'll mean something. Uh, if you're younger, that won't mean anything. But this, go look him up, Keith Green. He had Keith Green playing. And... Uh, you know, he just had joy in his face, and, and I don't know if he knew at that point that this was terminal and uh, that he would die, uh, but he just had a joy about him, and uh, his character was only more beautiful in his suffering at a young age, and, and then his senior year, he, he died. He had, uh, was planning to go to Texas A&M, never had an opportunity to go to college, never had an opportunity to have a career, perhaps get married and have children. Never had an opportunity to be a godly, a light shining in the darkness in a neighborhood and in a workplace to make a difference for Jesus. Cut down in his youth before he actually even got started. So hard to watch that. Last month, I, I read all kinds of stuff, uh, so this isn't a real biblical topic, but uh, I, I read a story about, I read a book about John Gotti last month, and, uh, and his life was... Uh, well, it was reprehensible. He was obviously a mob boss, and uh, he lived a life of theft, of violence, of murder, of ordering murders, many murders. Uh, he went to trial and got off his first case because he rigged the jury. Uh, in modern-day U.S., he paid off a juror and rigged the jury and got off. After he died, that, that was prosecuted, that juror. But he, he got off. Went to a second trial. He got off. Extorted people. Killed people. And he just kept living on and on and on. Finally, he was ultimately sentenced to life in prison and died there. But even in the book, it referred to other mob bosses who lived into their 70s or even their 80s, just having other people whacked and somehow not getting killed themselves. And you think about why is that guy still living? Why, why is someone who harms so many people and promotes the harming of other people all for their own selfishness and greed, why do they keep living? That's what Solomon's saying in verse 15. In my vain life, this is what I've seen. And, and it's a common belief that if, if you live right, things will go well. And if you live wrong, they won't. I mean, the Bible says, after all, right, you reap what you sow. 
And so we think if I do right, things will go right in my life. And so I would avoid doing wrong so things go right for me. And that may be the way God generally deals with us and with his people, but it's not always the way he deals with us. And the temptation is to have some rigid worldview, some rigid application of reaping and sowing to such a degree that I'm in control of my own destiny and I'm in control of my own blessings and prosperity because what I do shows up in the blessings of God and in long life. And there's a book of the Bible that's entirely written to undermine that philosophy, that the rigid application that what I do will result in blessing, um, there's a whole book that undermines that, and it's the book of Job. Job is the wisest, uh, most godly, he's the most righteous man of his day, and he loses everything except his wife. And she's a piece of work if you read the book. (laughs) Uh, No offense. Well, why am I offending? She's not here. But anyway, (laughs) I don't think anybody would be offended, uh, taking offense for Job's wife, hopefully. Uh, But so he loses, all his children die in an event. He loses all of his wealth, very wealthy man. He loses everything. He loses his health. And so you look at him and go, man, he was a righteous guy and he lost everything. And his friends come to counsel them. Some counselors, listen to what this counselor said to him, Job 4, 7 and 8. Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. So his friend is saying, hey, look, Job, innocent people don't suffer like this. Can we be real? Innocent people don't go through what you're going through. This must be a result of sin. He needed Ecclesiastes' counsel, not that friend's counsel at that point. Because the reality is that everything is not as simple as it seems, the preacher says. There are mysteries in the ways of God. Sometimes the righteous perish young in their righteousness, and sometimes the wicked prolong their lifestyle of evil. So what do we do when we encounter this conundrum? And we do encounter it. And if we're thinking, it can keep us up at night. How how do we deal with this conundrum? Maybe should we just be press in all the more and go, wow, okay, that person, look what happened to Job, look what happened to my friend that I mentioned in high school. Maybe I should just press in and and seek to live more righteously. And if I'm just more righteous, then maybe I can avoid suffering. Or if I just obey God a little more, maybe I can live a little longer. I mean, is there's got to be something that I can do to force God to make things go well for me. And man, is his answer surprising. Look at verse 16. Be not overly righteous. Should I be more righteous? No. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly righteous. Some of us are doing great at this verse. And um, <laughs> you've been around people who say share their life verse. I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a life verse, but I don't have a problem with those of you who do. But if you don't, I suggest for a fun moment that... You memorize this verse, so the next time people are giving a verse with this very pious and powerful, and they come around you in the circle, go, what's your life verse? And you go, well, it is Ecclesiastes 7, uh, verse 16. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. And that'll just let all the air out of the room. 
Does he, is he really saying don't obey God too much? Of course not. He's not saying don't obey God too much. Um, so what does he mean? Does he mean don't be self-righteous? Uh, could be. I, I think a version of self-righteousness is what he has in view here. He's, I don't think he's just talking about parading your righteousness before others. Like you've encountered that before and you just want to say stop, stop, please stop being so extra in your righteousness. Tone it down a little. Take a breath. We're going to be okay. So I don't think he's talking about parading our righteousness, but consider the context. I think that's the key. The context is righteous people uh, can be perished, struck down young, or can suffer in their righteousness. So don't be over-righteous. Don't try to be so righteous that God would owe you something. In other words, this is the kind of righteousness that says, if I do something, then God must do something in return, like give me a long life or give me blessings. It's Job's friend's righteousness, not Ecclesiastes. In other words, when the path, your path seems crooked, verse 13, bent and you don't like it, and when you're in the day of adversity, verse 14, you may be tempted to think there is something you can do to stop the adversity or to stop adversity from ever happening to you or to prevent uh, suffering. Don't be over-righteous trying to think that somehow in your ultra-righteousness that, that, that you can control the mystery of the ways of God. This is what Sean O'Donnell in his commentary on Ecclesiastes says about this. He says, the sense is this, if anyone, whether righteous or unrighteous, can die young, which of course is true, then do not think that somehow obtaining ultra-righteousness will be an absolute insurance against such calamity. It's not that Solomon is against righteousness, which he defines as consistent godly thought, speech, and actions. Rather, he is against attempting to tie God's hands or open God's hands of blessing by our behavior. Do you see that? He's saying, don't live your life thinking, if I'm righteous enough, that'll tie God's hands and he can't bring calamity in my way. Or if I obey God faithfully, then I'm forcing the open hand of God to bless me. Because that's not always the way that it works. Unlike the message of prosperity theology, this passage just blows prosperity theology up. Just blows it entirely. Game over. Knockout. It's over. This verse alone, I think, describe, it, just, it just says that, that we, we can't do that. But the truth is, we all live, we're all tempted by works righteousness. We all think, look, if I've done something right, now God must do something for me. No one in the room would say that. But it shows up in our attitudes. You go into your day, something bad happens, and you think, oh, man, that's, that's probably just happened. I skipped my quiet time. That's probably why it happened. I didn't spend any time with the Lord. And look what, look, yeah, that's what happened because I didn't spend time with the Lord. This is grace church, not karma church. This is, we're not living by exactly what you do is what you get. We're living by grace. And you may spend an hour in prayer and still get in a car wreck driving to work. It doesn't work. You do this and God must do that. We think that way. Man, I, I talked about finances earlier. You say, for the first time, we've been faithful in our giving. We're giving generously to the church. We're supporting a missionary. We're giving to an orphanage. We're, we are 
we're giving the highest percentage of money we've ever given, and we just had a financial catastrophe that is setting us back years. What's behind that? If I do my part, God better bless me and do his part. I deserve it. I'm a giver. In marriage, you say, I, I mean, this is new for me, but I am really repenting of things in my marriage. Maybe you took re-engage and you're convicted or something happened. And you're going, man, I am, I am trying to treat my spouse in such a godly manner. I've been working on this, not a week, not a month, but for the last year, it's probably been the greatest effort. God's at work in me. But you know what? He or she, they haven't changed at all. I, God, look what I'm doing. Why aren't you changing him or her? If I do my part, God owes me this. Or as a parent, I did everything. I'm doing everything that I know to do for my kids. I'm taking the church. We're doing family devotions. I'm teaching them scripture. And they're not responding at all. Or they're grown and they don't believe. God, I did my part. You owe me believing children. We all live with these truths, and yet the Bible teaches that God is sovereign. And here's the big idea. You cannot manipulate God with your behavior. It's grace. And it's mysterious and unexplainable sometimes. We need to get away from the idea that, that this is how it works. God is not a vending machine. You do not put your coins or your, now it's dollars, I guess, in the machine and press D7 and your bag of Cheetos always arrives for you. That's not the way it works. God doesn't work that way. Sometimes you put D7 and your bag of Cheetos, that little thing goes like that, and it just hangs at the end. And you push, how long? How long? And the vending machine and the Cheetos are still hanging there, denied. Why does everybody else get Cheetos when they put in their $10.50 probably, but, <laughs> right? God is not a vending machine. We're not in a works righteousness system. We are in a system of grace under a sovereign God who is good and always acts for our ultimate benefit, but does not always act in the timing or in the way that we think we deserve or we have earned. So, when the righteous die young, should we just give up and say, well, the world's chaotic, there's no rhyme or reason, there's no cause and effect, there's never any reaping and sowing, so I'm going to do whatever I want. No, he says, look, don't be overly wicked either. Don't go to the other side. Don't pursue a lifestyle of wickedness, thinking it doesn't matter. Paul says that in Romans. Don't sin all the more so that grace may abound. Don't do that. So how do we live in a world where sometimes the young die and the, old, the, the sinful evil live on, where the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? How do we live in that world? Well, he tells us in verse 18. And 18 says, it's good that you should take hold of this. Young people, take hold of what we're talking about, all of us. And from that, withhold not your hands, for the one who fears God shall come out from, either from, uh, from them from both of them. Throughout the book, he's advocating the fear of the Lord, living with a, our, our life 
you know, oriented around God, living in awe of God, living with a reverence for God, living with an esteem for God, aware of his holiness and majesty, so that we respond to the day of prosperity and the day of adversity with trusting God's ways and not our ways. That's one way we fear the Lord. We say, Lord, I don't like this. God wants, the, the Bible's clear, be honest. Be honest, God's not fooled anyway. I don't like this. I wish this was not the way it is. I'm praying how long, how long, O Lord, that you will change it. And yet I trust you. It's Job who feared the Lord when he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. It says that, Lord, you are above all and you will receive my worship when there's a smile on my face and there's tears streaming down my face. Either way, you are worthy. I fear you above all else and I submit to your ways. I'm not going to live under the, with myself as my own God. I'm going to live with you as God and I'm going to trust you. That's fearing the Lord rather than saying, I deserve this, I deserve that. Why did this happen? Why did that not uh, happen for me? I love the old hymn written by William Cooper who uh, was a man who struggled with profound depression. He was uh, put in a sane asylum at one point. He was uh, just suicidal. He, he struggled with uh, what today would be called, I mean, this was, this was centuries ago, today would be referred to as you know, significant mental health issues. He was, uh, really lived a life of great suffering, yet he wrote these powerful hymns. And one he wrote is, God moves in a mysterious way. And he said in there, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, by your weak senses, what you can see, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. What does that mean? That God always is acting for our ultimate good and for his glory. It looks like a frowning providence. It looks like dark clouds, but the sun is behind it. It looks like, Lord, how could this work out? Why are you doing this to me? And yet it is ultimately God's will to do something for his glory and for our good that we may not see now, we may not see later, we may not see until eternity, but God is always good. All the time, God is good, is he not? And so this is what we, we live, fearing the Lord with comfort because the God who cannot be manipulated and controlled is the God who is good and always acts for his glory and for our good. So the mystery of God's ways is what he wrestles with. Then he talks about the limits of man's wisdom. Let's look at verse 19, and we'll finish out the chapter here. Wisdom gives strength to the wise more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. 
which my soul has sought out repeatedly. But I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but, I, but a woman among these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God, can, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Okay, I will cover those verses at the end, which don't sound like Mother's Day verses, a few of them there. Uh, but this is what happens when you just teach through by sometimes, okay, well, that's where we are. Might have, might have, might have could have picked a different passage. Um, so first of all, he says, living in the fear of God. That's where we are. So you need to fear God. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength. L- the fear of God leads to a life of wisdom, and wisdom is builds strength in your life uh, more than 10 rulers in a city, he says. So that's, that's good news. But even the wise aren't always righteous. See, the limits of our wisdom, the limits of our righteousness. Even though you may have strength, hey, look, everybody sins. That's the next point, verse 20. Uh, he says, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So ultimately, there is no one who deserves from God because they do good and never sin. The problem with the idea that God always rewards our righteousness is that there's nobody to reward, ultimately, uh, save one. Uh, who lived an unrighteous life. And he immediately gives an example. So he's building a case. We're limited. Look, the right, the wisdom, the wise people have a lot of strength, but no wise person always does good and avoids sinning. And, and he gives this really earthy, practical example. He doesn't say everybody sins. Think about murder and robbing banks. He doesn't go there. He goes to something that we all can relate to. He says, verse 21, don't take heart at all what, 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 uh, all the things people say. You hear your servant cursing you, when, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you have cursed others. He's saying, here's a common occurrence. You find out that somebody's talking about you, uh, criticizing you, here strongly, cursing you. Uh, somebody is whispering about you. Someone comes and tells you. Sometimes they come like this. Did you know everybody's saying, which usually means that person thought about it and needs a little uh, emphasis to bring behind it, so, or they talk to one person, you know. Whenever I hear that, I always say, okay, I, tell me names, okay, how many, how, who are, who's in this group? Is it you, and, uh, or is it you and your one friend who nodded when you said it? What is it? Or, or are they really all saying it? So th- this, is, th- this is what happens. Don't take to heart everything you hear somebody say. In this case, it like empl- would be the equivalent of an employee. So if you're a supervisor at work, for sure this is going to happen. Someone's going to be talking about you. You're a supervisor at work, and hey, you know, I'm going to let you know, hey, it's, you know, just because I care about it. I just want you to know, somebody's, they're saying this, okay? They're going to bring it to you, or you oversee an email. You got copied on something you weren't supposed to be copied on where they were talking about you, or you just overhear in the office. What do you do? He says, you know what? Hey, give them some space, because you do the same thing about your supervisor. That's what he says. <laughs> Look, you, haven't we all done this, verse 21? Your heart knows that many times you yourself has cursed others. The limits of our wisdom... How limited is our righteousness? We charge people with crimes that we are guilty of. That's the point. We all do this. We all charge people, hey, what are you doing gossiping? We do the same thing. The point is even the wise sin. The final verses of the chapter are going to continue to talk about the limits of human wisdom. He's kind of putting us in our place here a little bit. 
for those who would charge God to, hey, straighten up the crooked path, God. Uh, he's kind of letting us, putting us in our place in a good way, I think. Well, the rest of the passage is, continues about his desire to figure things out. Verse 23, all this I've tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which, that which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Look, I want to be wise, but this is a challenging task. I cannot figure everything out. Verse uh, 24, it's deep, very deep. In verse 25, he says, look, I, I tried to figure out the schemes, everybody's schemes. What are they scheming? I tried to figure out wisdom and folly and wickedness. Verse 25, he says, I turned my heart to know, to search out and to seek wisdom. He says, I wanted to know the scheme of things, the wickedness of folly, or fo of folly and the foolishness that is madness. So he's saying, look, I'm wanting to go out and figure all this stuff out. Maybe there's an answer to why the righteous die young. Maybe I can figure that out. Maybe I can figure people out, we're going to see, he says. So I sought out to do that, and you know what I bumped into? I bumped into something that is, he says, more bitter than death. Verse 26, I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, snares are traps, traps and nets, and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. So what's he talking about here? Is this the idea that, you know, women are to blame, especially in immorality, for the immorality of men? I mean, she is got these traps. She's setting. She's a, it appears that she could be a seductress or something like this. Uh, is he blaming women for men's uh, sexual immorality? Well, not at all. If you'll notice, he says the only people she traps are the sinners. Verse 26, it says, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner's taken by her. So the sinner, so there's, it takes two to tango is what he's saying. The, 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 the sinner is responsible for his entrapment. He is morally responsible for his actions. But I, I wonder, is he really even talking about an actual woman that he has encountered? It says, he says, the woman. You know, I, I was going out, and this is what I found. I found something more bitter than, than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets. So we're in wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. Job is literature. That's why I'm kind of uh, wisdom. I'm bouncing around in some wisdom literature. Because there's common, there's common conventions. There's common conventions in wisdom literature. They sort of do the same thing. And in Ecclesiastes, I mean, in Proverbs, we find a Solomon there talking about a certain kind of woman, not perhaps an, an individual woman, but a certain kind. So Proverbs 7 talks about the adulteress, and is that what he's talking about, be guarded against the adulteress? Maybe, it could be, but there's another possibility that, that makes a little more sense, at least to me. So I'm going to give you a few possibilities. One is he's talking about a particular woman. He actually found a woman like this. Another is he's, he's talking about a certain kind of woman. But what, I, what, what sort of caused me to stumble a little bit reading it this week is that he says that it's more bitter than death. And I thought, if Solomon met a woman who tempted him to immorality or something else, and... Uh, is that worse than death? Is that more bitter than the end of life itself? He's, he's speaking poetically, so it could have been that it is, and he's exaggerating. But I think there's another possibility, and it's Proverbs 9, 
In Proverbs 9, wisdom and foolishness, wisdom and folly, which this chapter is about, are personified as a woman. So in chapter 9 of Proverbs, you find lady wisdom and lady folly. And lady folly looks a lot like this character. Lady Folly, she stands at her door and she calls, come into my house. And Proverbs says, the simple come into her house. And they think they're having a good time because stolen water is sweet. So come into Lady Folly's house and you come in and you enjoy uh, forbidden pleasures. Stolen water is sweet, but Proverbs 9 says, but death is in her house. Death is in her house. So another possibility is that he's really just talking about what Proverbs talks about. When it talks about a woman who, this woman, uh, she, her heart is snares and nets. Her hands are fetters, that is, they chain you by the ankle and hold on to you. And the one who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Beware, foolishness and folly calls out to all of us. I'm trying to understand life, and I found something more bitter than death, that wherever you go, there is foolishness, there is wickedness appealing to you and calling you and seeking to ensnare you and even take your life. Could be a woman, could be a type of woman, could be a personification of, of, of women like it happens in chapter 9. I met the woman, the woman folly who traps the sinner. I'll let you go with whatever you want on that one, but that, that's where I'm leaning on that one. I just want to explain it because it could be kind of confusing. And then the final comments, uh, verse 27 and following, he says, Behold, this is what I found. The preacher says, while adding one thing to another, to find the scheme of things. Now, this word find really means to figure out. And I think the whole passage makes a lot of sense when you think, hey, what I found, what I figured out was this. Verse 27, I'm going to read it that way. Behold, this is what I figured out, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to figure out the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not figured it out. That makes sense, right? I, I thought this, I wanted to figure this out, but I could not figure it out. The scheme of things, verse 28, which my soul has sought repeatedly, I've not figured it out. One man among a thousand I figured out, but a woman among all these I've not figured out. Now, is that sexist? It's what we would ask in modern days. Probably not a question asked in Solomon's day, but an ask, a question asked now. Well, I, I guess I would start with, he, he doesn't put men in a real good situation. It's one in a thousand that he understands. You know, one in a thousand, which would be, what, a tenth of one percent of men he has been able to figure out. He hasn't been able to figure out any women. Uh, this one, I wonder if this is reflective of his own life. I searched this, and this is what I found. Is this reflective of his own life? Uh, I think it could be, which I guess could mean to be consistent. Perhaps the woman with traps is literally somebody he met as well. I'm not sure. But here, is he, is he talking about his own life? He had Nathan in his life, Nathan the prophet, uh, who clearly would be a man who would be wise. And maybe he says, I've sort of figured that out. This guy's bringing the very word of the Lord to me. But think about the women in Solomon's life. The Bible tells us that he married 700 wives and had 300 concubines. He had 1,000 women in his life. I say had because that's literally the case with a concubine and likely a wife in that day as well. He had them. Um, and here's the problem with his wives. They were all foreign. 
he married, he didn't marry good Hebrew women. He married Ammonites, uh, you know, the, the Hittites. He married, uh, I, I believe, the, uh, Pharaoh's daughter. So he married all of these foreign women, and there's nothing wrong with a woman from another country. The problem is they all brought foreign gods. They were all idol worshipers. And so his sample size, at least personally, of the population wasn't a pool of godly wisdom. He, he, his life is filled with, uh, with women who are worshiping other gods and actually seeking him to do the same. So it could be that his sample size is perhaps not the fairest, biblically speaking. And as one person said, probably most of Solomon's study was conducted with the lights down low anyway. And so he's probably not really, he's probably not really learning wisdom from foreign idolatrous wives that he probably doesn't have much of a relationship with, a companionship with, a true intimacy with anyway. So whatever he means here, he's people you can't really figure them out. And lest we think he's given men a pass, the sinner is the man who falls into the trap with the, uh, the woman. And verse 20, there is not a righteous man on earth. No one does good and never sin. Those are universal sayings. That's the best I understand the passage. Verse 29, he says, see, this alone have I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So he takes us back to the garden. I can't figure out this. I can't figure out that. There's something more bitter than death over here. Even the wise sin. I can't add everything up. I don't understand men except maybe one. I don't understand women. And I, I just come to the end of it. But one thing I understand, verse 29, this is what I figured out. This is what I found. God made us upright, but we've sought out many schemes, he says. So he takes us back to the garden, and he says, Adam and Eve were created with righteousness, but then they sinned, and we have all sought our own schemes. Man, it looks like this passage doesn't leave us with much hope, right? It ends with everybody seeking schemes. We were righteous, but we're not upright anymore. Verse 20, you know, everything, every man sins, no one does good. We're always being drawn in with these traps. Um, can't figure out anybody. So our wisdom and our righteousness is limited. And it just leaves us sort of empty. And I think that's ultimately for us as Christians the point. It leaves us with looking for someone outside of ourselves. I'm not righteous. I'm not, I, I'm not wise like he speaks of. There's none righteous on earth who does good and never sins. But what Solomon didn't know is that there was coming one after him, generations after him, who did good and never sinned at all. After Solomon came the Lord Jesus Christ. The passage does not leave us in a hopeless situation. The passage leaves us looking for a righteousness outside of ourselves. Looking for a wisdom outside of ourselves. Uh, in, in the garden, man and woman sin, Adam and Eve sin, but God promises even there that he will reverse the effects of the fall, that he will send one who will crush the serpent's head, who will bring life, who will bring forgiveness, who will bring reconciliation, who will pay for Adam's sin and bring reconciliation between humanity and God, those who would believe in Jesus. 
Sin and death, yes, they did come through Adam, but through Christ comes salvation. So in ourselves, we are not righteousness on our, our, our own. We are not righteous on our own. But the Bible says that Christ is our righteousness. The Bible says that Christ is our wisdom. And the Bible says that through him, we can know God. How do you come to a place where you can live with these two realities, the mystery of God's ways and the limits of man's wisdom? How do you live with those two realities? Through Jesus Christ, who is our wisdom and is our righteousness, and who does not provide every answer to every circumstance, but does promise that he is with us always, even to the end of the age, who does promise that indeed he is good, though no one else is good, he is good, who does send his spirit who lives in us and comforts us and strengthens us. We're not left with God's mysterious and we don't measure up, and that's the whole Bible. If we read on, it pushes us. It pushes us to a Savior. This text makes us hungry for a Savior. It makes us desirous of God. Come and help us, and He does in Jesus Christ. This text on its own would leave us saying, well, okay, I will fear God. He does deserve my worship, but I'm, I'm really left with more questions than answers. But with Jesus, he is the answer to the problem. And we're left with massive answer and some small questions along the way, to be sure. But Jesus is our answer. So what do we do when we can't explain circumstances and we can't explain people? We look to what we know for certain, that God is good and he demonstrated it by sacrificing his own son for us. God is good and that he loves us. If you want proof of that, look to the cross. God is powerful. If you want proof to that, look to the empty tomb. So these are the two great truths, I think, that really sustain us. God's gospel, that he is holy and gracious and loving and God's sovereignty, which this passage talks about, which is God rules over all. Say something to the young people, and then I'm done. If you grasp these two truths, there's a lot more truth in the Bible, but if you grasp these two, you will be well on your way to a fruitful Christian life. That God is holy, and I am not righteous, but God loves me enough that he sent his son for me, and, and he's with me. And I'm living not by laws that if I do this, God does that. I'm living with a heart joyful to Christ because of what he's done for me. And God is sovereign. I'm not going to explain everything, can't explain everything that happens. But he's good, the gospel proves it. And he is overall, and he will use everything for my good. I'm going to invite the band to come. Man, that leads us to communion, doesn't it? Because in the cross of Christ, this is where we see this all come together. The mystery of God's ways. Can you imagine being a follower of Jesus, a disciple? Talk about mysterious ways. There's the Savior dying in front of our eyes. How do you explain that? But God rescues and God raises him from the dead. So we really see the wisdom of God and the grace of God, the mysterious ways of God. We also see the limits of our own righteousness. We come to the table not saying, I deserve this. We come to the table saying, oh, Lord, thank you that you invite me and that you've welcomed me to the table. So we come acknowledging God's mystery in the gospel and acknowledging our own deservedness. Our wisdom is limited. Our righteousness is limited, but he is faithful. So let's stand together. We're going to sing, and we're going to receive uh, the Lord's table. You're, we invite you to come forward. Uh, we'll go row by row to receive. If you are a Christian, you don't need to be a member of this church or anything. If you're a believer, please come and receive. If you're not a Christian, we would just ask you to wait. Um, we're not trying to be unhospitable, 
or something like that. But the reality is this is for people who identify with Jesus as their Savior. So it's not going to be meaningful for you. It's not going to be real for you. And we don't want to just encourage you to go through some religious activity. Uh, you're welcome just to stay where you are. Um, you're welcome to come through the line and not take the elements. You're free to do that as well. And uh, most importantly, you're more than welcome to trust Jesus in this moment. As we're singing and as we're receiving, think about what that means, his body given for us. And trust Christ in your own heart. Believe in him and then come talk to us and we'll, we'll get you ready for next week to receive communion. So uh, let's, uh, let's sing together. And you may come to the end of the rows. If you come forward, uh, we will uh, receive you. Please come. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.